Last week, we announced our end-of-year giving campaign, what we're calling the Spark Campaign, and you have an insert in your bulletin that lays it out. And the, the heart behind this campaign is a recognition that God has blessed us as a church, and he's blessed us with a lot of resources, relatively speaking. And our goal and our hope for this campaign is that we would raise $150,000 by the end of this month, and then we would give it all away. And we would give it away to help fuel works of the gospel, both here in our city, around the country, and abroad. And so we talked last week, we want to plant new churches, that we want to help support adoptive families. We want to fuel gospel renewal and help start the new sojourn work in Sojourn Carlisle. And today I want to talk about one of the initiatives that I'm, I'm very excited, but also a, a little bummed out by, and that is that we want to send missionaries with this. And in particular, we want to send Larry and Susan McCrary. And, you know, we always say we as a church, we want to send our best and our brightest. This is why I'm bummed out. Well, God called us on that uh, when he called Larry and Susan to go to Spain and begin a new work there. Larry has been a friend and a brother and a mentor for me over the last decade. He's been on staff here for the last three years, and he's done an incredible, tremendous work on beefing up uh, all of our sending initiatives, and he's going to be sorely missed, but we're also really excited for the doors that God has opened for him and Susan in Madrid, and their hope is to plant a church there uh, in Madrid that actually embodies a lot of what we embody here. And so we have a short video with Larry and Susan sharing a little bit about what God has done and what they're hoping to do that we'll play for you now. I'm Larry. And I'm Susan. I've been pastor here at East for the last three years in the area of sending. We moved to Louisville from Spain after serving as workers for over 15 years in Western Europe. But Madrid has never left our hearts. We're excited to be headed back to live and serve in Spain in January of 2019. Madrid is a global city with over 6 million people. Historically, Spain has been a religious country, but currently it's mostly secular. Research would even say that less than 1% have a personal relationship with Jesus. We are excited to move back to Madrid and especially move back to the neighborhood that we once lived in. We're hoping to plant a church in the heart of the city as we share the gospel with these Spaniards and make disciples. We'll be starting from scratch in an area that is not very receptive to the gospel up to this point. Our strategy is to create movement in three spheres of engagement, liturgy, community, and mission. Our worship and word will be centered around liturgy, which will be familiar for many Spaniards. In Madrid, community happens around the table. We'll be inviting people to deeper relationships, inviting them to be a part of the community, and providing a place for them to explore. The people of Madrid also have a strong social conscience. We desire to be serving alongside them in our community, in the city, and engage in the nations. You may be wondering how you can help. Well, the need is great. There are several things that we will need as we start this ministry. We need gospel-centered curriculum and Bibles. We also need hospitality funds so that we can host these gatherings. And then we will need to pay for the rent for the space that we use. By giving to the Spark Campaign this December, your gift can help us start this work. You can read more and give online at sojournchurch.com forward slash spark 2018. Can we give it up for the McCrary's for their obedience, their faithfulness?
and really their courage. It's a staggering number, less than 1%. Uh, they're going into uh, you know, enemy stronghold territory. And so I want to encourage you to consider giving to this campaign to help support them. I also want to encourage you to be praying for them. And I want to let you know that on January 13th at our Sunday gathering, we will be commissioning them, officially sending them out with a lot of joy and with some tears as well. So let's pray for them and let's pray for us as we prepare to hear God's word. Father, we thank you for Larry and Susan and their faithfulness here. We thank you for the blessing they have been to our church and big initiatives with sending and helping us better support missionaries and start new works. But we also thank you for their presence and what they mean to us as friends and brothers and sisters. And we pray that, uh, that over the course of the next month and the coming months and years, that they won't feel like they're leaving Sojourneys, Lord. We pray that they will feel very much that they're being sent and supported and prayed for and cared for. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, uh, we come in with a lot on our minds and a lot on our plates. But we know that your word is powerful. It has the words of life for us and words of hope. And so I pray that you might settle our minds and our hearts, that you might remove the distractions that are kind of swirling around in our head so that we might hear what your word has for us and we might leave here changed by it. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today's scripture is from Galatians 5, 16 through 25. Please stand for the reading of God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to start by asking you a couple of questions. The first question is, if you could change anything in your life, what would it be? If you could change anything in your life, what would it be? And I'd encourage you to consider actually writing these things down. Second question, pressing a little bit more, if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? And I'm not talking physical appearance, like I wish my hair wasn't going gray or falling out or things like that. I'm talking your character, who you are. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? 
I imagine the second question is probably a little harder of a question to answer than the first. Some because you haven't considered that question in a long time. Others might be hard because you're like, I can only pick one. I've got a whole list of things that I'd like to see change in my life. Uh, maybe for some of you, you've got a short fuse and you've got a temper or anger problem that's really hurting your relationships. Maybe for others of you, you just feel like you've been in a spiritual funk for a really long time and you'd like to get out of that funk. Maybe for others of you, it's there's one particular sin that's just made its home in your life and you've tried and you've tried, but you just can't seem to get rid of it. And for you, you would love to see that changed. I, I submit to you that if we're honest, we all have things about ourselves that we'd like to see changed. But a lot of times we lose hope of change because change is hard, amen? Change is not as easy as you think it would be. And sadly, oftentimes it's the things we most want to see change within ourselves and the things that we try the hardest to change that we feel that we're actually unable to change. And it leads to a lot of frustration. Well, the text we're looking at this morning, I would argue, is the text about how real, deep, lasting change happens in the life of a Christian. And the promise of the scriptures are clear that in Christ we are a new creation. In Christ we can actually change. Who we are today doesn't have to be who we will always be. And yet we still struggle with change. And I think the reason we struggle, one of the big reasons we struggle, is that we don't actually understand how change really works. I'm speaking broadly there, and that's not true for all of us. But I think generally in the church, we don't really understand the process. How do we actually change? I think the common understanding of change is that we say no to sin and we say yes to holiness. Like, how do we, how do we grow? Well, I gotta say no to these things, I gotta say yes to these things. And we look at lists like Paul lays out for us here as a bunch of things we gotta say no to and a bunch of things we need to say yes to. And in the end, it's up to us, our discipline, our willpower, our virtue, our commitment to Jesus, it's up to us. All of those things that will determine whether or not we actually grow or change. And I would say if that's how you understand change, you're probably gonna end up frustrated, discouraged, and exhausted. And I think there are an awful lot of Christians who that describes pretty well. I know oftentimes in my own life, I've been there where I'm just frustrated, discouraged, and exhausted. And I think this frustration and discouragement, it arises because our understanding of change and the process of change, it's really simplistic. It disregards the, the significance and the depth of the level of conflict that exists within our soul. And that's what Paul's trying to help us see here in this text. He wants us to be people who can change by the power of God but he doesn't want us to be ignorant to how it actually happens or to the depth of the conflict that exists in the soul of every Christian. Before you come to, Christ, before you come to Christ, you're in conflict, the scriptures say, but the essence of the conflict is between you and God. It's a bad conflict that you need to lose. It's you fighting with God, seeing who's going to rule over your life. Now, when you become a Christian, that, that conflict ends. That war is over, but a new conflict emerges. And it's the conflict between the Spirit of God, which he pours in our heart, which gives us power and new desires and assurance of God's love, 
It's a conflict between the spirit and what Paul calls the flesh. And when Paul speaks about the flesh, he's not talking about our physical bodies. It's not that the spirit's good and our bodies are bad. He's talking about that part of us that still loves to indulge in sin, that part of us that still wants to live for ourselves, that part of us that still wants to rebel against God. And what Paul wants us to see here is if you're going to understand how to change, you have to understand just how significant this conflict really is. And you need to see that a maturing Christian, one of the signs of being a maturing Christian, is you are experiencing this conflict. J.C. Ryle once said that a true Christian is marked not only by their inner peace, but by their inner warfare that there is real conflict that exists within our souls. And John Stott put it like this. He said, the conflict between the desires of the flesh and those of the spirit is fierce and unremitting. Indeed, one may go further and say that this is a specifically Christian conflict. We do not deny that there is such thing as a moral conflict in non-Christian people. Listen to this. But we assert that it is fiercer in Christians because they possess two natures, flesh and spirit, an irreconcilable antagonism. So what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is I really want to press into what Paul teaches here, helping us understand the nature of this conflict and really understanding the nature of the flesh that exists within all of us and the nature of the spirit and, and what they're both trying to achieve in us and how we can actually find victory and grow in maturity. So we're going to look at this text under a very simple outline. We're going to talk about the works of the flesh, the fruit of the spirit, and then how we actually grow. How do we actually change, grow in maturity, and gain victories? What I love about Galatians 5, this is one of my favorite passages in the scriptures, and one of the things I love about it is Paul, he, he doesn't leave this idea of spiritual growth in the abstract. He doesn't leave this discussion kind of out there. He brings it down to street level, like everyday life. And when he wants to help us understand the works of the flesh, he actually lists out 15 different things. And we can put these 15 different things into four categories. There's sexual sins, there's spiritual sins, there's relational sins, and then the last one we could call sins of lack of self-control, sins of intemperance. But he begins, kind of where a lot of people would assume he would begin, by talking about sexual sins. He says this, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And I know there are some of you here probably thinking, here we go, the Bible's repressive teaching about human sexuality, but it's really important to see Paul doesn't say the works of the flesh are sex. He says there's sexual immorality and their impurity and sensuality. And understanding that distinction really helps us understand the works of the flesh because God, God, you know, he's not anti-sex. He actually created it. He's the author and architect of it. It was his idea and his plan from the very beginning. But what the flesh wants to do is it wants to take this good and glorious gift that God gave us, but it wants us to use that gift in a way that dishonors God. Sex, our sexual desires are some of the most powerful desires we have as human beings. And God knew that if, if that desire wasn't constrained in a certain way and in a certain relationship, in particular in a lifelong covenant of marriage, that crazy things would happen in our world. And we, we see all the time the crazy things people do to fulfill that desire. And so God said, we're going to 
put sex in this context of marriage, and it's a gift to be enjoyed in that context. If you take it out of that context, bad things happen. And it's, it's like fire. Is fire a good thing or a bad thing? Generally speaking, fire is a really good thing. It keeps us warm, keeps us alive, it cooks our food. You know, we are much better for having fire than not, but if you take fire out of the grill or out of the fireplace and just kind of throw it anywhere you want, it's incredibly destructive. Now, what Paul is saying here is what our flesh wants to do is it wants to take the gift and use it in a way that dishonors the giver. And so sexual immorality, that's a broad word that simply means sex outside of marriage. That's sex before marriage. That's adultery. That's, I would include pornography, sexual fantasy life. Any way that you are indulging in sexual pleasure apart from your spouse. Impurity, that means unnatural sexual acts. And then the last one, Paul lists sensuality. That could also be translated as indecency. And the essence of what that word means is it's, it's a lack of personal constraint and a lack of respect for others. And so the Me Too movement that we've seen over the last couple of years, that was born in response to this work of the flesh, where you just don't control yourself, you don't respect other people, you just want to see that desire fulfilled. There's sexual sins, but then there's spiritual sins. Paul says idolatry and witchcraft, and I think you get to this part of the list and you're like, Phew. All right, maybe these ones are a little easier for us because we don't have the wooden idols uh, and most of us haven't played with Ouija boards in a while, and so we think we're okay. But when you actually press in, what Paul is saying here is the flesh not only does it distort our sexuality, it distorts our, our spirituality and our worship. Idolatry, maybe the, the simplest way to explain it, it's when we take good things and then we make them ultimate things. Idolatry is when our souls lose all sense of proportion. And so things that are good and important become the most important. Like, you know, could be your family. Like, you really want to have a good family. But idolatry happens when it's like, I am going to live and die with whether or not I have the best family. Or maybe it's the other direction. Your job, your success, which I know a lot of you are tempted to. Where you find your very identity and how successful you are. And you'll sacrifice everything on the altar of success. Your kids will grow up singing Cats in the Cradle because you were bowing down to being successful and making a lot of money. Sometimes we do it with dumb things, right? We can do it with, with trinkets and toys. We can do it with sports. Like when, when we watch a, a football game and like our week is, is severely, you know, brought down and our spirits are brought low because our team lost. It's not just like, oh, that's a bummer, but it's like you're angry, you start lashing out at people, which I know you do. Like, that's, that's a disordered soul. And then he says sorcery, and, or he says witchcraft sometimes is translated sorcery. This is when the soul, instead of trusting in God and praying to God and seeking God, this is when the soul tries to manipulate God, bargain with God, or manipulate our circumstances through rituals, good luck charms, horoscopes, word of faith teaching. Instead of seeking God relationally, it's seeking God through superstition. Then he continues. In these first two lists, it's like we know those are bad in the church. And the commentators actually know, he's actually kind of turning the, the knife here, and he's saying... For Christians, this next list, which is the longest list, these are more acceptable sins, but they have the same root as all those other sins. It says enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. 
These are all interpersonal, relational sins that oftentimes are respectable sins in the church. Starts with enmity, that's a word that means hostility. It means you just be hostile to people. And it can be meant broadly. A lot of times this is used in terms of race. And so enmity is where racism, that's what falls under this category. Or it can happen between classes. I think when you look at our political climate and just the hostility that exists, it's great evidence of the works of the flesh that are just raging in our culture, just hostility. The next one, jealousy. Jealousy, the best way to define it, it's, it's an inability to rejoice with those who rejoice. When something good happens to someone else, instead of being able to celebrate it, there's that part of you that just, for whatever reason, doesn't like it or gets kind of angry. Maybe I'm the only one, anyone? It's like something great happens. I even like the person that the great thing happened to. But instead of being like, man, that's amazing, it's like, why didn't I get that? Reminds myself of my kids. Like, why did they get it and not me? It's jealousy. The next one is kind of a fits of anger. It's bursts of anger. This is when you blow up at your kids, blow up in traffic, or blow up at the person writing a check in the checkout line at Kroger. Like, are you kidding me? Why are you writing a check? Can you fax it in or something before you come? It's 1980. Who writes checks at Kroger anymore? It's my own thing. Um, but you know, like we have, we have an incredible capacity to get raging mad over very dumb things, right? Like to get really angry over like it's an extra 30 seconds at Kroger and you're going to get this mad? It's the work of the flesh. I'm going to throw a whole bunch of them together. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, strife. These all kind of have a, a sense of contentiousness, of dividing people up. Paul says one of the works of the flesh is you want to feel superior to other people. You want to feel above them. You want to feel special, and you want to draw lines in the sand. And as Jonathan preached last week, there's an awful lot of Christians who, who think that's at the heart of Christianity is critiquing others. And we see this spirit a lot. And Paul's saying, actually, that's a work of the flesh. I'm not saying there's not room for discernment, but I do think there's great irony in people who claim to have the spirit of discernment and yet show no discernment in how they use that, that gift. You guys tracking with me on that? For some reason, they all have blogs. And they think that they need to put their discernment out there. And it's just other people who think like them who write about it. And Paul's saying they act like they're really spiritual, but they're not. It's a work of the flesh. Dividing people is not the work of the spirit. Last one is envy. In this list, envy is constantly wanting what other people have. It could be their house, their spouse, their car, their kids, whatever it is. It's looking at other people and thinking, I wish I had that or their life and it keeps you from being able to enjoy what God's given you all relational sins the last two drunkenness and orgies these are kind of big words that Paul uses here that just show an utter lack of self-control not being able to actually say no to any of your desires but just giving yourself over to them and saying you know we'll deal with it in the morning kind of thing and you feel awful, you feel horrible, but then the next weekend you do the same thing over again. Paul ends the list by saying, and things like these, because he wants us to be clear. 
he's listed 15 things and he's like, I'm just getting started. Like I just gave you a few. I'm not trying to be exhaustive, I'm trying to give examples. And Paul, the, what I want you to see here in Galatians 5, the, the way I read this text for so long is Paul was saying, don't do these things. Now, that's good advice. Like, your life will be better, your relationships will be better if you don't do these things. But that's not why Paul lists these things out. The reason Paul gives us this list is because he, it's almost like he's picking up a mirror and he's holding it before us, trying to reveal in us the corruption in our own hearts, trying to reveal in us the fact that the flesh is still very active in every single one of us. He wants us to see it. He gets real practical and I would imagine that for most of us, we read that list, and there are some that it's like, like I don't, I don't have a real temptation towards sorcery, uh, personally, but then there are other ones that, man, they hit me right between the eyes. Paul wants us to recognize how serious this battle is. He's not just saying, don't do these things. He's saying the seed of all of these sins is already in you because of your flesh. And it's serious. And it shouldn't be taken lightly. That's why he continues, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when he says do such things, he doesn't mean if you blow up at someone, you're not going to, like, that's not what he's getting at. He, a better way to translate it would probably be, I warned you as I warned you before that those who practice such things, those who adopt these things as a way of life, those who quit fighting against and resisting these works, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul wants us to feel the weight of this. And I want you to feel the weight of it. And I also want you to feel the freedom because Paul lists them out and he says, hey, this is what's true of all of us to an extent. We all have these works. I want you to feel the freedom to actually acknowledge some of these things are in you and they're working in you. You know, one of our values as a church is truth and honesty. And the reason we, we put that out there is because somewhere along the lines, in a lot of American churches, it was seen as more sinful to be honest about your sin than to just try to act like it didn't exist. But for a lot of us, we think like a real Christian wouldn't struggle with these things. And Paul's like, no, we all have the flesh and we all have the spirit. And the flesh... All of us are going to be tempted in these ways. And if we lie about that, then we just try to bury these desires or these temptations, which you can't bury them for long. And then you turn into this life where it's like you're just manipulating your behavior around certain people, but you're not actually acknowledging the significance of the conflict. So my question for you is, can you be honest? Can you acknowledge with honesty how these works and these desires are at work in your life? Do you recognize how powerful and how destructive they can be? Now, that's pretty negative and weighty, and thankfully Paul doesn't end there. And even though Paul, he's kind of turning the screws on us a little bit in this passage, or in that part of the passage, I want you to see that the overall trajectory of the passage, Paul's very optimistic 
and hopeful because he doesn't stop with the works of the flesh. He says, yes, these things are still at work in your life. And he says, but there's another force at work in your life as well. And that's the spirit of God. And he, he tells us that the spirit of God is actively working to produce fruit in our lives. He says the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That God... God is in your life right now and he is seeking to grow you more fully into this list of virtues. He's seeking to produce this fruit in you. That's what God wants to do in you. And I think a lot of us ask you if you could change one thing in your life. You know, you wrote something, but I think a lot of us have really small ambitions about who we could actually become. I think a lot of us, we lack the imagination to really see the kinds of people that God wants us to be. When Paul gives us this list, he shows us. He says he wants us to be a people marked by love. Love's the chief Christian virtue. Love is a desire and a willingness and an eagerness to seek the good and well-being of others. It's serving, it's helping, it's caring, it's building others up. The opposite of love is self-absorption and self-centeredness. Love is giving your life away for other people. He says, this is who God wants you to become. Joy. God wants to produce joy in you, and joy is a hard word to define. A lot of times people try to distinguish between joy and happiness. I actually think there's an awful lot of overlap between the two, but the way I would describe joy, joy is like a spiritual resiliency, or even a you could say a buoyancy. It's a spiritual buoyancy. You know, if you were ever a kid and you were fishing a bobber, you know, you can push the bobber underwater, but it always pops back up. And joy is being so rooted in the goodness of God, the love of God, and the promises of God, that hardship and suffering are going to come. Pain is very real in this world. Loss is very real. Tears are very real. But you're so rooted in the love of God, the goodness of God, and the plan of God that when those things knock you down, they knock you down, but you don't stay down. You're able to get back up. God wants us to be the kind of people who are so grounded in the reality that every tear one day will be wiped away that the worst things that life throws at us, they're not going to knock us down for good. The next one, peace, is similar. Peace, it's not just an absence of conflict. It's a settledness in your soul where you have an unwavering trust in the goodness of God and the wisdom of God. The opposite of peace is anxiety, and I've been very open with you about my own struggles with anxiety. Anxiety, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons for it, but a lot of times anxiety in my life just comes from like a lack of trust in the goodness of God. Uh, anxiety shows up in my life thinking of like all of the bad stuff that can happen in the coming days or weeks. And, and it's not that the bad stuff can't come and the bad stuff can't happen. You know, Jesus, he says, like, don't worry about tomorrow, not because everything's going to be fine. He's like, because today's got enough things to worry about. Now, peace comes when we recognize, yeah, I might experience loss. I might experience pain. I might go through suffering. I will. We all will. That's life. But peace comes from knowing God, knowing his goodness, trusting him, 
trusting that even the worst things will work out for our good so that you can actually live day by day, facing the day, not retreating or hiding. This is who God wants us to become. The next one, patience, could actually be translated as being long-tempered versus short-tempered, long-suffering. God wants us to be people who have the ability to face trouble without blowing up, lashing out, or melting down. He wants us to be people when conflict arises, when opposition comes, we don't seek to re retaliate. We actually know how to diffuse our anger. Even more patience. There's this long-suffering. It's the ability to persevere and press on in tough situations. And this is something that's severely lacking. I, I see in our day that we don't we don't know how to press on. We like to bail at the first sign of hardship or conflict. For some reason, we're under the illusion that life should be easy. But life's not easy. Life's hard. And God wants us to be people to recognize it's hard and be able to press through and not hit eject when things get difficult. That's what the Spirit wants to produce in us. Number three, kindness. Kindness is really close to love. It's looking to the best interest of others. But usually kindness is linked to generosity. Which just means you're willing to step in and sacrifice your time, your energy, your money in order to help others. Goodness could also be translated as integrity. It's being the same person in every situation. Who you are on the outside matches who you are on the inside. Goodness, you see this in a person. I don't know if you have people in your life that you know whatever they're saying, they mean what they say all the time. I mean, we all probably have people in our life that they might be saying one thing, but we know there's always like some angle that they're working. And they could be good friends, but we just know they're the good friend who's always working an angle. Every time that they call, we know there's going to be an ask before the conversation ends. Whatever comes before it, it's fine, but there's going to be an ask. Well, goodness means you don't have ulterior motives. That who you are and who you seem are the exact same. Faithfulness means you're trustworthy, means you're true to your word. You're a friend in both fair and foul weather. People rely on you in times of need. Gentleness. Gentleness is one that could have a negative connotation in our culture, but this is a really positive thing. Gentleness is the ability to respond to conflict, rejection, or even injustice, not with harsh words or aggression, but with measured emotions and thoughtful words. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle word turns aside wrath. Gentleness, you're a person, if you have this character, you're a person who walks into a tense situation and you diffuse it. You lower the temperature. You know, I have some friends that are like this, that Pastor Chad's one of these guys, that he can walk into really like volatile situations and he has an ability to, to de-escalate it rather rapidly. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's who God wants us to be. He doesn't want us to be people who throw fuel on other people's anger. Now, this doesn't mean that we let ourselves get walked all over or trampled on. Sometimes it does mean that we suffer and turn the other cheek. What this means is this gentleness. It means that we don't look at people as one-dimensional means that we recognize that on 
On the, side of, on the other side of every conflict is a person that was created in the image of God with their own story, their own emotions, their own internal issues and stuff that they've been through. Gentleness, it's an ability to carry life's complexities and people's complexities with em empathy. But you can look and you can say, man, they're a mixed bag and so am I. And how do I love them well? Last one is self-control. It can also be translated as self-mastery. This is an ability to hold your tongue and control your desires. It's an ability to control your impulses. It's the ability to say no to that which you know is evil and not good for you, and the ability to say yes to that which is good, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard. And if you look at these two lists, so that's the fruit of the Spirit, the other work of the flesh. If you look at these two lists, it's a lot of different things, but one of the things, there are two things that the works of the flesh all have in common. One, they all dishonor God, and two, they all destroy relationships. You know the flesh is at work when it's dishonoring God and when it's tearing down relationships and tearing down communities. The works of the flesh, the flesh seeks to use people for its own end. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, honors God, and every one of these fruits of the Spirit, or every dimension of the fruit of the Spirit, it strengthens relationships, and it builds up community. They're all really manifestations of love. And so some of you, you come in here, and, and you've got some really broken stories from your past. You've got issues with your family, and maybe you've resolved them, maybe you haven't. Maybe you just have a lot of baggage you carry around with you. You don't have any baggage because your parents, you know, demonstrated too much fruit of the Spirit in their life. Like, none of your problems came from that. The baggage comes because of the works of the flesh. And so the question is, I, I say that to say, this isn't just an out there, abstract, ethereal conversation we're having. Like, how we live directly impacts those around us. If we're married, our spouse, if we're parents, our kids, if we're single, our family still, our friends, the people we work with. So the question is, how do we, how do we see the works of the flesh die, the power that they have in us diminish while seeing the fruit of the Spirit in us grow? How do we actually grow in maturity? And, gain victory in this struggle. And I'll tell you, for years I read this passage and I thought the essence of Paul's teaching here was stop doing the things on the first list and start doing the things on the second list. Maybe you've read it that way as well. Stop it, try harder. And, and I would say it's not entirely wrong. It's just woefully incomplete. Paul does say, we need to crucify the flesh in verse 24. We do need to resist the internal pull we all feel towards sin. But if our only strategy for growing as Christians, if our, our only vocabulary for spiritual growth is stop it and try harder, I can tell you from both pastoral experience and personal experience, you're not going to get very far. And... <laughs> You're going to be very frustrated. You're going to be very disillusioned. And you're going to be stunted in your growth. 
And I think that so many Christians, they live in perpetual spiritual adolescence because they've been told the way you grow is saying, stop it, try harder. That doesn't work. And really, Paul's whole emphasis in Galatians is preaching against that. Why? Well, stop it and try harder. That's trying to grow by the law. It's trying to grow according to the law. The law is not bad. The law just doesn't have the power to actually change us from the inside out. And what Paul's talking about here, he says the Spirit wants to change you. It's interesting, the first list Paul calls, refers to as the works of the flesh. The second list, he calls the fruit of the Spirit. He changes the metaphor. And Paul, Paul's always deliberate with his language. He's like a lawyer. He didn't just happen to change that. It's deliberate. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of self-discipline. Not the fruit of your effort. He's saying these things arise in your life by the Spirit of God. This is Paul's greatest emphasis throughout this section. Verse 16, Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, let us be led by the Spirit. Verse 25, we live by the Spirit. And then he finishes by saying, we need to keep in step with the Spirit. So Paul is saying, do you want to know how to grow? Do you want to know how to reach maturity in the Christian faith? It's the Spirit. Like it's fixing your eyes on the Spirit. It's keeping in step with the Spirit. It's supernatural. And we want strategies and we want practical strategies and we, we, we want tangible things. And Paul's saying, no, growth happens supernaturally through the Spirit. And there are strategies. And we'll get into those in a minute. But you have to see that our growth is a supernatural growth. And what this means like we, we cannot grow apart from the Spirit. What this means is that there is, a, I haven't been able to find the right word, the best word I can come up with, there is an indirectness to how we actually grow as Christians. What I mean is, you can't grow typically by facing things head on. If you've got an anger problem, you know, and you want to grow in gentleness, it does you no good to say, I am going to become more gentle. Like I'm going to work on this thing until I conquer it, and then two weeks later you're gentle. You can't do that. I never see it work. Never seen it work in my life, never seen it work in other people's lives. Oftentimes, the more people try to like deal with one particular sin or issue or character defect, the worse it becomes, not the better it becomes. You can't deal with it head on. Paul even says that in verse 16. He says, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say, don't gratify the desires of the flesh and then you walk by the Spirit. You guys with me on that? How do we not not live into the works of the flesh, but you walk by the Spirit. It's, it's indirect. It's kind of roundabout. The way we grow is by walking with, or as Paul says, keeping in step with the Spirit, which is such an interesting metaphor. Because it implies that the Spirit is going somewhere. He's moving in a certain direction. We don't have to decide where to go. We just... We just keep in step with him. Where's the Spirit going? Well, John 16, Jesus says that he's sending us the Spirit to remind us of the truth, to ground us in the truth, 
and ultimately he sends the Spirit to glorify himself. Christians, we get all weird about the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? Well, Jesus tells us the Spirit's main job is to glorify and magnify him. That's why J.I. Packer refers to the ministry of the Spirit as the floodlight ministry. He says, when floodlighting's done well, you don't actually notice the floodlights, you notice the building that they're shining on. And he's saying the Spirit, Spirit's job, and our role with the Spirit, it's not to just focus staring at the Spirit. Our role is to see Jesus Christ, that the Spirit is seeking to shine upon through the darkness, through the fog, so that we might see him and all of his beauty and his glory. We might see what he has done for us, what he has promised to us, and we might, we might become, it's a big word, but we might become enthralled with him, overwhelmed by him. When we become overwhelmed by him and we live in that place, he says all this fruit's going to start appearing. Because the fruit of the Spirit, where did Paul get this list? It's Jesus, right? I mean, the, the description here, it's, that's who Jesus was. Loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, selfless. Like all, that was Jesus. And what the Spirit wants to do in us is he wants to enthrall us with Jesus and then he wants to make us into little, little Christ, little Jesuses. He wants to conform us to his image. And when you do that, then all of the other stuff, like the saying no and the getting rid of sin, it's no longer like I am going to be self-disciplined and self-controlled. It's like this is where I'm going and you kind of in a lot of ways, you almost forget about those things. And so the question is, like, how do we stay in step with the Spirit? And while our growth is supernatural, keeping in step with the Spirit is actually a pretty, for the most part, it's a pretty ordinary process. It's showing up to worship with other believers. It's opening up the Word. It's opening up your heart and prayer. It's baptism. It's taking part in the Lord's Supper. It's it's what the saints of old used to call the ordinary means of grace. But the Spirit shows up in those ways, grounds us in the truth, glorifies Jesus, and then we're able to grow. And I think this is why change, one of the reasons change is so difficult for us is because we live in, like, we're the microwave generation. You guys recognize that. Like, I don't know what it was invented 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Before that, in all of human history, there was no microwave. So if you wanted to heat something up, you had to turn on a stove or create a fire or something. We can create boiling water in two minutes by hitting a button. And so we kind of are in this, this point in human history where we want what we want right now. And when it comes to growth, it's like we think that if we put effort forth for three days into something, we should achieve some measurable victory. It's just not how we grow. That's where the imagery of fruit is so important. Fruit, it doesn't matter how much you yell at it, it doesn't matter how much water you pour on the tree, it's not going to appear overnight. It takes time. And some of you, you're struggling to grow, you're struggling to change because you want to change this one thing instead of the whole. And because you're putting like intermittent concerted effort and then you're just kind of forgetting about it, 
And the way we grow is over the long haul. It's the little decisions we make day in and day out to show up and to be faithful. Our growth, it's contingent upon the little decisions. And so my application for you, like my big call to you, is don't neglect the ordinary. Thanks for showing up today. Showing up on Sunday, I know sometimes it's hard. When I'm not preaching, we have five kids. It's like coordinating a circus to get to church sometimes. My wife does it every week by herself. She's the same. But it's hard work, and there's that temptation. Is it, do I really need to go? Am I going to hear the same thing I heard before? Showing up 10 minutes early so that you can pray before a meeting or a hard conversation. Finding 15 minutes to open up your Bible, 30 minutes, or maybe even an hour. Showing up with other believers instead of staying home. Like, that's where the war is won. But they don't seem all that significant in the moment. That's my prayer for us. I do want to close by telling you, if you're here and you, you feel overwhelmed by the conflict in your soul, that should be a huge encouragement for you. Be encouraged if you feel discouraged by the amount of conflict. That's one of the things this text tells us. You know, Satan and misled Christians will tell you a real Christian would never struggle with X, Y, Z. This text tells us, no, a real Christian would struggle with all of those things because the flesh and the spirit are raging. Don't be discouraged by the conflict. Satan wants to discourage you to the place where you're like, I'll never change, and you just give up. I also want to say, if you don't feel a sense of conflict or struggle in your life, if you really sense conviction, if you think all the real problems are all out there, it should lead you to a place of self-examination. This is a bigger conversation, but our, our culture preaches a lot of self-love and self-acceptance these days, and that's not all bad. And Jesus assumes self-love in the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. But I do see a lot of what, what falls under the banner of self-love and self-acceptance is that whatever you're doing, whatever you're feeling, wherever you are, it's always right and it's okay and it's your truth and just embrace it. You don't need to change. Your truth, your truth. My truth, my truth. Like just wherever you are, it's fine. And the word of warning here is it's not, though. But what this text teaches is the real... The reality of the Christian life is there's a fight, and it's a fight we can't win on our own strength, but it's a fight that, that we have to step into by the power of the Spirit. So wherever you are, as we come to the Lord's table, if you've trusted in Christ, be reminded that we have the ability, the confidence that we need to step into this battle with courage because we know that while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. And that while we, we were still running from God, Christ gave himself for us on the cross. That his body was broken and his blood was shed on our behalf. So as we come here, if you're discouraged by the conflict, come and feast and be reminded of God's love for you. If you're here and you're like, I don't even sense this. I don't have a desire to grow. Pray that God's spirit might bring a new level of conviction and awareness and the spirit of renewal within you. Let me pray.